Man, I didn't know how, how much I needed intro music, welcome music, uh, until just now. Uh, we should have had that a long time ago. Well, again, welcome to you if you just hopped on uh, to stream with us or if you came in after the welcome. We are so glad that you're here joining with us today. Uh, we have been in a series the last few weeks talking about Sabbath, uh, this idea of a, one day in seven to rest to stop from our labor, to become aware of God, to delight in him, to be renewed, refreshed, and then shaped for the rest of the week in the life that we have. It's a rhythm of grace that does something to us to shape our hearts and our minds and our bodies. Uh, We're wrapping things up this morning, tying what we've seen so far together in this idea of Sabbath as an act of worship. And worship as being part of our Sabbath. Stephen joked last week that, uh, about this being a 40-week study, that we were just going to continue to stay here and remain as we move forward. And there's some truth to that joke. It, uh, through this next week, we continue to have weeks in the Lenten Guide to study through, so I want to encourage you to stay the course. And then coming up on April 17th, we're going to have a Sabbath workshop so we can get from our head into practice some of the things that we're doing. And if you can't join with us on the 17th, we're going to record it and make it available to you. We've talked about Sabbath once a year for the last three years, and I can tell you, put your money on the fact that we're going to talk about it again next year. Because there's something about recovering this rhythm of grace that is so necessary for our discipleship and growth in spiritual maturity. Not only that, but for our witness to the world around us, a world that is marked by so many voices clamoring for attention and allegiance, trying to shape our practices, our habits, our lives, our feelings, and our thoughts. And so we need to take hold of this rhythm. We need to take hold of this practice in community together. For me, this idea of practice being so important is really new to the last five, six years of my life. I spent all my life in the church believing if I had the right ideas, that was enough. My belief in my head was in the right place until I encountered my heart, until I encountered my actions, until I saw that the way that I invest in my life didn't match the things in my head. You see, we are so much more than just thinking beings. We're not just these giant heads and that's what matters. And then surely if you know the right things, your body, your actions, your will, your feelings will follow. That's not true. Think about in your own life this last year. Because so many of our practices have been changed. Think about this last year and something that you used to love something that really stirred your heart, something that you had all kinds of mental experiences and remembrances about, some sort of practice that you knew what it was like in your head, in your heart, with your hands and your feet. And then as a result of COVID and the restrictions that we've experienced, that habit has been lost. And so we may still love it and remember it up here. We may even have some feelings about it, but the practice is gone. And so some of those feelings and those thoughts begin to erode over time. Similarly for me, and I'm, I'm, I'm a heady person, not in a positive sense, 
but more in like an insecure sense. To me, it's like I want to know and see before I go and do because I want to know what I'm going to feel and experience. I want to know what's going to be expected of me. I want to know whether the roller coaster is going to be able to fit me. I want to know whether the people are going to laugh at my jokes. I want to know what I'm going to think, what I'm going to feel, what I'm going to do before I go do it. And in my own spiritual maturity, one of the things I've had to learn is that I can't think my way there. Because I'm not close enough to the practice to be able to see and know what it's like, to be able to feel it. I've got to come close into the practice. I've got to go through the motions. Only then will my heart and my mind be shaped. Similarly, over this last year, there are things in COVID that we have picked up, not just that we've lost. Finding new ways to connect with others, finding new ways to prioritize our mental and emotional health, finding new ways to love and listen to our children, to our neighbors, to strangers, new ways to check in out of necessity. And the practice has given us, has given us mental pictures and ideas, things to remember. It's given us new loves and longings and recalibrated our hearts. As we've talked about Sabbath over the last five weeks, we've engaged our heads a lot. And for some of us, we've also engaged our wills, our our hands and our feet, our calendars, the expectations around us. We've begun to make room so that we can taste and see what the Lord is offering to us. And in that doing that we may know and we may feel and we may be transformed. This is the rhythm of grace that we're looking at. So we're going to talk about worship today, and we're going to go to the most famous passage, a call to worship from Psalm 95, saying, Come and sing unto the Lord. And we're going to look at this idea of worship, not just in our head, but with our hearts and our bodies, what it would look like to inhabit and embody this practice so that our Sabbath can become worship and that we will worship in the Sabbath. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Psalm 95 as a read for us, verses 1 through 11. O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God, and a great King above all gods. In his hands are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker, for he is our God. And we are the people of his pasture, and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah or as on the day at Massa in the wilderness when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For 40 years I loathed that generation and said they are a people who go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. This is the word of the Lord.
Thanks be to God. God, we want to be a people that hear your voice, a people whose hearts are softened by it, a people whose dry bones are animated to life, that everything that we do will become an act of worship, of seeing you, of knowing you, and being transformed. God, we know today as we join together in this endeavor that feels all too human, that if the Holy Spirit doesn't attend to us, if God doesn't build the house, then we are laboring in vain. And so God, would you come as you have invited us to come into your presence? Would you shape our heads and our hearts and our hands for your glory and for our joy? In Jesus' name, amen. The word worship, what comes to mind for you? It usually starts there with your mind because not many of us got up to start dancing. We didn't start closing our eyes and lifting our hands. We're going to our mind first. What comes to mind for worship? I know for many in the church, what comes to mind for worship is this part to sit down, to get our notes out, to begin to engage intellectually because we want to think the right things. And it used to be easier to tell which group that was, the, the thinkers, and I would fit in this box at times because we were the ones rolling in at the coffee break. We were the ones heading out right before communion. And so for others of us, when we think of worship, we're, we're not really thinking about the word part and the study part. We're thinking about the so singing, the songs, the poems, the confessions. We want to feel that worship. We want to be animated to sing, to praise, to confess, to weep, to rejoice. And still for many of us, there's another aspect of it, and that's that belonging that togetherness. The ones who are here early to have a conversation in the parking lot. The ones that linger in the lobby after the coffee break. The ones who get home late and the roast in the oven is burned because we need to check in just a little bit more. Worship is this togetherness, the unity that we have. But I want to submit to us that worship is really all of these things together. That unless we feel, and unless we think, and unless we belong, unless we are moved, we've yet to worship. The word worship for us comes from the old English word worth shape. Worth shape, because the idea is that if something is worthy, it will have an effect on you. Similarly, if something is not worthy, it will have an effect on you. It will shape you. It will have an impact in your life and what you think and what you feel and what you do. I remember uh, trading baseball cards with a brother of mine, and he had an autographed card of, of one of my favorite Braves. And I got it, and I was five, six years old, traded him all of my cards to get this one, only to find out that he is the one that signed the card. 
All of a sudden, it wasn't worth anything, and it wasn't worth especially what I lost, and I threw it away. I was shaped by it. Later in life, when I uh, was probably middle school age, maybe fourth, fifth, sixth grade, something like that, when I was growing up, my grandparents owned uh, a rare historical uh, and expensive bookstore where they collected first editions, some that were 400, 500 years old. And so one Christmas, like a grandparent could do, they gave me a book. And I remember taking it and putting it up, up on my shelf, tucking it back behind all of these toys I had gotten at a fast food restaurant, this 1996 Atlanta Olympics Velcro wallet that I had, all of my prized possessions up front, taking this book and putting it in the back. And then a few months later, my mom saw it in the room and said, you don't know what you have. She began to explain to me that this book was a rare first edition, that the monetary value of this book was worth more than everything I owned combined. That it was a story that, that was riveting and captivating and one that was right in line with everything that I loved and everything I wanted to explore. And it even had this personal value. Because my grandparents knew of this book, but they didn't have it. They went out to find it so that they could give it to me. When I found that out about this possession that I had, when I saw its worth, when I engaged with it mentally and emotionally to see its worthiness, its worth, its value, I began to be transformed. So I cleared out that space in the shelf where everything else had cluttered it. I pulled that book out and put it in the prime spot. Other books that I had been reading, I set aside and picked it up and was captivated by the story that was being told. Every time I had a break in the school day, I raced upstairs to find it, to read it again. When my cousins came over, I talked their ear off about this book that our grandparents had given me. The worth of this book, when I finally encountered it, when I possessed it, when I knew what it was in my head and my heart and made place for it in my life, I was transformed. Worth shape. When we come into worship, it's not just something that we do, but it's something that is done to us. Worship is something that is done to us even before it's something that's done by us because God goes first saying, come. God goes first calling your name before you know his. God comes first to tell us of grace and holiness and truth before we have any concepts, any mental understanding, any good feelings, any practices. God comes first invites us in to his worth so that we can be shaped by it. Worship does something to us. More classically, uh, one of the definitions that, that I found to be so helpful 
is this two-part definition by Tim Keller, that worship is experiencing God's ultimate worth and giving to God all that he's worthy of. Experiencing all that God is worth, all of his ultimate value in our world, turning off every other voice that claims our attention and our allegiance to listen to the voice that is above it all, to encounter his worthiness so that then we will be moved to enter the story to enter in, to express, and to share, to rehearse the truth, to sing the songs, to confess his goodness, to taste and eat. Not only ourselves, but together with others. You may notice in Psalm 95 that all of the language here is plural. Because the invitation to worship and to be shaped isn't just for you, it's for y'all. You see, when we come in and we see God's worth, we come seeing and being able to understand and rehearse and practice some part of it, but not the whole. The next time my grandparents came to visit, they came to share even more about the search to find this book for me, more about the ideas that illuminated their decision to go find it for me, more about its resale value. And they were able to share with me a side of its worth that I couldn't see on my own. And similarly, when we come into worship, this is why it's so powerful. Because I know there's people watching and worshiping here today who are singing God's praise in the midst of so much pain. They know God's worthiness, his faithfulness, so much more right now because of their desperation and their longing. I know others who are in here who have so much understanding because of study that they've done, experiences that they've had, and they're coming and they're sharing. And so though I don't have the knowledge base that they have and the experiences they have, I can come in too. And we're singing the same songs. We're talking about the same God. This invitation and togetherness that we have We get to see God's worth in different ways, not only with us, but these songs and these psalms that have been sung for thousands of years, and they'll be sung long after us. They're sung here on a Sunday morning, and they're sung around the world by God's people. And together we are all experiencing and expressing the ultimate worth and value of God. In the passage here, there's, there's instructions, or a description rather, a, a picture of how we worship, what makes it up. Thankfulness, praise, expressions of security and faith, trusting in the rock of our salvation, thanksgiving, gladness, joy, remembrance that the, God made the world and he holds all of it in his hands. Remembrance that he has done great works to deliver us, that he's a gracious God whose voice cries out even when we've neglected it and we haven't heard it. 
Invitations to be near to him like a shepherd tending to his flock. Friends, when we come to worship, we don't just come as thinking things. And we don't just come as feeling things, and we certainly do not just come as doing things. We come into the ultimate value and worth of the God who holds all things in his hand. And yet he tends to us like a shepherd, and we come with our thanksgiving, our joy, our gladness, We come with our pain and our questions and our longings as Stephen prayed. We come to engage and to learn, to see the story again. We come to be moved to hear the voice. This is what worship is. And here's why it matters so much. We're not just thinking things or feeling things or doing things. We are so much more. But what we think and feel and do, they're interconnected. For us to think and feel the way that God desires, one of the ways into that is by doing what he desires. To come into the story and be shaped by the doing of it to feel to think, to see. There's other times where you don't know what to do. You don't don't have any thoughts about it, but you feel deeply. And sometimes God leads us in that way. But because worship is seeing value, seeing worth, and being shaped by it, we are all worshipers. I think there are many out in the world who would say they're not worshipers. They don't worship anyone or anything. They don't go to church. They don't sing. They don't study as if that's all worship was. But worship is not just something that we do. It's something that's done to us and it's really who we are. Because all of us have to locate value somewhere outside. If you can perfectly locate all of the value and perfection that you need in yourself, that's called narcissism. And it's frowned upon in our culture. All of us have some sort of gap, something that's missing, some sort of longing that's not fulfilled, some sort of need and a picture for hope and healing and restoration and holiness and how it's going to work. We need a picture of rest. We need to see what it's like to do it. We need to think about it. We need to feel it. All of us need to look outside of ourselves to find that worth. And when we see it, we'll be shaped by it. In the passage here, it says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. And so God's voice is calling out to us. But we have to recognize something that we see in verse 3, where it says, We worship the Lord for the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. God is a voice who's 
who's crawling out for our t- attention. God's voice is calling out to invite us into rest, to soften our hearts, to shape us. And yet, he's the great king above all gods. Now, the Bible isn't saying here that there are other gods. The Bible says that the Lord is the only God. And yet, there are so many other God-like voices. So many other things in our world that are clamoring to shape us that are offering us worth and value based on what we do or what we have or what others say about us, what we've done for them, the failures they've seen, oh no, we're not worthy. The things that we know, that's my worth. There are so many voices that are calling you, wooing you, telling you, this is what's valuable. And if you'll be shaped By it, the value will be yours. There's a a story, maybe you've heard of it. It's a rare story. It's not the one I talked about from my grandparents. I think it's called Harry Potter. In Harry Potter, there's something called the Mirror of Erised which is desire spelled backwards. And when someone comes before this mirror, what they see in the reflection is their heart's greatest treasure. They see a picture of all of their longings fulfilled. And so when Harry comes before it, he sees himself being loved and treasured and cherished by his parents who had died a long time ago. When Ron Weasley comes, the, uh, the younger brother of a, of a large family, he comes and he sees himself as a great sports star being celebrated by all of the school and all of his family and finally being delighted in by his parents and others. The mirror shows them what they see as being of ultimate worth. And it shows them, giving insight to how their life is shaped towards that end. When we come into worship, we see God's picture for us. When we enter into Sabbath rest, we get a taste of what God has in store. It shows us God's greatest desire to bring us into communion and fellowship and righteousness and grace into his love and delight and intimate presence with us. That is God's ultimate worth. His treasure. What he has expressed to us to come into his glory. The mirror also works, the mirror of worship and of Sabbath, to show us maybe what other voices we've given into. As we've talked about Sabbath the last four weeks, or when you consider worship being part of your life, what's the yeah but? We've talked about 
worship and, and Sabbath, we've talked about experiencing this picture, this goodness with God. But all of us have some reservation. Yeah, but what about my kids? What would it be like if we didn't have the structure and routine of our normal week? What about my work? What if I'm not available and accessible for that time? What about the endless chores and projects I have to do to maintain my home? What about the things I need to go experience and participate in in culture? To go to this event, to have my kids in the right sports, to make sure we get the homework done, all of these lists. How have those things and their claims of worth shaped our lives? It's exactly because those voices are crying out to harden our hearts so that we won't enter into his rest. It's the exact reason why we need to do it. This is the exact reason why we need to trust in faith that God holds your job. He holds your kids' education. He holds all of these things in your hand. You can take a break for a day. To come in and to see the one who's calling you, who's wooing you, the one of ultimate value has, who has delighted in you, to sing over you that he may shape you for the life that he has. Friends, worship is not something that we do in as much as it's something that is done to us. All the time we spend worrying, thinking, doing, feeling about other things, other people, or ourselves, is having an effect to shape us for itself. But when we come to the Sabbath, and when we practice Sabbath as an act of worship, to God, it takes faith. It takes hearing his voice. The voice who has already called you and said, come. I hold the world in my hands and yet I'm your shepherd. I can tend your life. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Amen. Some of us are working in here. <laughs> Friends, when we come to this meal, don't you think it's curious that God had something for us to do, something for us to eat, something for us to feel the sweetness, something for us to feel some satisfaction, something for us to feel some rest, something for us to come together to, a table where he is present with us. The invitation of God's table is the invitation to be shaped by the pattern of here. He calls you to eat. He feeds you and he sends you out. So he invites you to enter into his story. To enter into the practice and the worship of this table. That it may shape you in head, in heart, and in your will.
As we come to the table, let us pray the prayer of thanksgiving together. The Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. On the night that Jesus was betrayed with his disciples, he took bread and after giving thanks, he blessed it, broke it, and gave it to them, saying, this is my body, which is broken for you. Take and eat of it. Come into the story. In the same way, he took the cup of wine after giving thanks, he blessed it and gave it to them, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Drink of it, all of you. And the Apostle Paul reminds us that when we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. So together we proclaim the mystery of the faith, that Christ has died, Christ is risen, and Christ will come again. Come and eat, come and drink.